Welcome to Traders Horizon, a podcast produced by Active Trades and presented by myself, Ricardo Evangelista. We invite guests with fascinating views to share and remarkable stories to tell. Our conversations, during which we always look for insightful trading ideas, cover a range of topics, including the financial markets, economics, geopolitics, entrepreneurship, and more. Last week, we spoke to Silvia Antonioli, who, after 10 years as a successful journalist with CNBC and Reuters, amongst others, started her own media company. This week's guest is Paul Craig, an economic and political strategist, who in 2011 founded View from the Peak, a multi-asset class research platform with offices in Hong Kong, Chicago and London that focuses on the interaction between public policy, economic trends, technology and geopolitics. Prior to forming View from the Peak, Paul spent 15 years in investment banking and asset management, a time during which he covered a variety of roles, including being management partner at Chorus Capital Management, which is a hedge fund based in New York, and he also worked at Goldman Sachs and Macquarie Bank. Welcome to Traders Horizon, a podcast produced by Active Trades and presented by Ricardo Evangelista. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Ricardo, it's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Paul, for 15 years, you worked in investment banking and asset management. Do you miss those days? Uh, what made you change paths? Do I, do I, miss, do I miss spreadsheets till 3 a.m.? No. Um, do I miss waking up in mornings and not knowing what exogenous event um, knocked the portfolio down 5% without me knowing? No, I don't miss those. Um, look, I think, Ricardo, look, there's a, I, I think the, you know, I thoroughly enjoy doing what I do now. And it's a natural evolution as one sort of goes through their career, um, that they find the thing they like to do the most. And, you know, financial markets, I, I love and I love to my core. Um, what I don't love is the things that you don't get taught as a, as a young analyst that financial markets involve. And it's the you know, running, running money, particularly running hedge fund assets, is, is really difficult and it's really stressful. Um, and there's a reason why it is a brilliant business model that 99.9% .9 of people fail at. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to say that I failed at it per se, but I'm certainly not. I'm certainly not Lewis Bacon. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, I think that it's, uh, look, it's a very difficult business model um, and it has, you know, extreme rewards for a reason because it is a very difficult, difficult thing to do. So it's less, but I would say it's less about, you know, do I miss those days or do I thoroughly enjoy what I do now? And it's certainly more that it's certainly more the latter. Well, that's that makes sense. Um, so now you you run a view from the peak. Um, could you please explain to our listeners who are not familiar with uh, with View from the Peak, uh, what is it and, and what um, motivated you to to found it? To, to, to sure. Start so it so View, for the, View for the Peak is a, a global thematic research business um, and it is multi-asset sort of lo sort of a longer duration type research, even though we do run tactical portfolios and, and the like. Um, and the reason I the reason I started it was um, well, about, I'll, get, I'll avoid the sort of there's a bunch of personal reasons, but sort of the, the reason I saw the need for the business was looking at research as I did for many, many years. There was a disconnect between what you were receiving from the research world and how I ran money and how other people ran money. So what, what we decided, well, what I decided to do was to build a research product which effectively uh, revolves around the ways that people manage manage assets and predominantly manage hedge fund assets. And ironically, as, as the business has evolved, it's become much more a, a process of, of providing research of how sort of endowments, endowments and family offices and the like run money and, and less about sort of shorter term sort of speculative stuff. Uh, but, you know, we wanted our, our, our research to be incredibly practical, right? Because again, um, plenty of 
amazing academic research out there that is going to lead you to no investment ideas at all. Um, and for me, that was always the reason why one bought research is, you know, can I make some money out of it? Um, and that's what we that's what we did. Um, I think we've done a I think we've done a reasonable job at sort of sticking to that that ethos. You know, a car, a, you know, you do from time to time go off on these theoretical tangents that don't mean anything to anybody, um, and you do them to sort of to prove a point. Um, but no, I think you know at the end of the day, what we decided to do, and I think what we've done well over the last ten years, is to is to build a research product that's practical. Um, and sort of my motivation around that was. You know, I was a I was a hedge fund manager for just under just under ten years. Um, I you know was had a change of family situation and took a couple of years off. And as I was sort of getting back into back into sort of what my working life was going to look in the second in the second phase of it, um, I thought, do I want to go back and run money again and to and to deal with the you know the the stresses I alluded to a few minutes ago? And and I I came to the conclusion that I I thought that I could provide more value to more people. Um, taking the you know the twenty odd years of experience that I had prior to this, um, and putting it into a into a practical research product, and you know we you know we looked at the we look at the world very much from a multi asset standpoint. We are um, completely asset class agnostic, um, which makes us a little bit makes us a little bit different to most uh, makes us a little bit different to most um, uh, to most uh, uh, research providers in so far as. We are equally comfortable talking about equity as we are with fixed income, which again the macro space doesn't really have that. Macro in the historical context has been had rate, rates and currency connotations. Um, we, if anything, we're equity first, um, so we look at the world very much from a top-down thematic through equity drivers. Right, right. Well, it's 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 quite interesting that that you you mentioned that the stress that you felt as a as an asset manager and how you you moved from being an asset manager to being the person who does the research that then can be utilized by asset managers uh, many of our listeners will will not have um, that luxury of of someone who who's able to provide high grade research for them so so they have to do to do both and and sometimes it can be even even for professionals of course it can be really overwhelming trying to trying to do your research and at the same time having to cope with the with the stress and the pressures inherent to 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 managing a portfolio so so i i, I totally understand where where you're coming from do do you still nevertheless do you still sometimes um feel sympathy for your clients and 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 feel that the stresses and the pressures they, they are going through is that something that impacts the way you do your work and and the type of service you oh, end absolutely up providing um, yeah i mean we you know because i've done this before right and, and come from you know having done it for a very long time i have tremendous empathy for what people are going through right um you know one of the things that we do as a, as a as an aside, like when people lose their jobs, we provide everyone, anyone who loses their job, they have free research for as long as they need to, right? Um, you know, people get fired in this business regularly, right? And getting fired, pardon my language, getting fired sucks. <laughs> it's you know, There's no good, nothing good comes out of getting fired, right? People say it's about the next step. Yeah, sure. At the time, it's awful. So, so we, so what we try to do, we have tremendous empathy for what people do on a daily basis, right? And look, and I have the utmost appreciation that when I recommend a trade idea, and I can talk about accountability all I like, um, I can have it on personally, right? But at the end of the day, if it goes wrong for me, it doesn't have the consequences for if it goes wrong for one of my clients, right? And I do have tremendous empathy for that. Um, and that's why one of the things we never, ever do, never do. And if, sorry, that's not fair. And if I do it, I make sure I tell people that I'm doing it. We don't do, we try, we don't do victory laps, right? We don't tell people how good we are because, you know, we, you know, at the end of the day, this is, this is a business where, What's the what's the number from Paul Tudor Jones? He's 40, 41 or forty two percent of his trades are positive, right? That's that's a world where obviously that's a that's a function of superior risk management and the like. But the the reality is that people generally get things more wrong than right in terms of um, in terms of their ideas. So doing victory laps and telling people how good you are and the like is just I think it's a one way ticket to get people to to you know to 
to have a bad taste in your, their mouths about what you do. Um, you know, and again, because I've been doing this for so long and I've got a, a slew of clients that have been with me for the last decade, you know, I'm as much a psychologist as I am an analyst now. Um, and these, you know, these are people I've known for, you know, some, in some cases, 25 years. Um, so no, this is, you know, in answer to your question, is that we have a tremendous empathy for what people do because this, again, going back to the, the, the fundamental basis of this conversation, it's a difficult business. Um, it's a stressful business, um, and to to not have empathy for people in times of um, in times of volatility is, um, I think, is uh, is is ignorant to what they what your clients are facing. No, that's a, that's a very valid point. I I always raise my eyebrows when I see someone doing what you call their um, very eloquently a victory lapse. Uh, you know, when someone. Um, starts blowing their own trumpet and saying look how good i am look at this trade look you know uh, at my at my transactions uh, here look i mean i i always think ah, bullshit you know you don't see, you don't see many people doing to, to, to sitting around and, and it's funny so when we when we make a when we make a blunder we make plenty because everyone makes plenty right um we have this we always write reports that are type uh, titled mea culpa uh, because it's it's pretty pretty darn important that you know when we're wrong we we a we try to learn why we were wrong. Um, B the fact we let people know we were wrong, um, and because you know hopefully you know in in a perfect world and I'm again I'm humble enough to not to to believe that people put on every trade that we recommend. You know we are but one input into the investment process of of managers managers around the world. You know. You know, in good occasions we may spark an idea, but look, they're going to go and get confirmation from other analysts, internal sources, and and the like. So you know, we we're but we're but one part of that one part of that equation. Um, and when we do get something wrong, I think it's important to let people know why we got it wrong, um, because we are but one part of that of that decision making chain. Exactly, exactly. All right. Well, I, I um obviously before we had our conversation here, I had a look at your websites and. Um, at view from the peak website and um, and I saw there what what you do and uh, I noticed that um, you guys focus um, you put a special emphasis on on China so so you do you do follow uh, China and uh, and all the ramifications uh, there um, it's also a topic that I'm, I'm, I'm quite interested in um, um, I mean, uh, a few years ago, uh, Graham um, Allison, uh, an American uh, political scientist, he, he wrote uh, the Tucidades Trap, Trap, which is a, a book where he, he looks he looks back into history and identifies uh, a number of occasions where the emerging power um, sort of entered the conflict with uh, with the established power, uh, and then he extrapolates from there to the present and and talks about you know a very high possibility of uh, conflict between the U.S. and China occurring in the future. Um, what are your views on this? Is it really so, or 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 not? I I, I struggle with the I, I struggle with the thesis. Um, I think there is, we'll put it this way. Anecdotally, it's hard not to argue um, that what you've seen really since 2016 um, has been a a marked deterioration in the relationship between the United States and China. And that's not just a Trump thing. That's a a confirmation that, you know, for the last, really, I'd argue for the last 40 years, the United States has got sort of China policy wrong by having a fundamental misunderstanding of what China is, what China's intentions, intentions are, right? You know, at the core of that is a belief that you couldn't have economic freedom without, economic success, Let's word it that way. You couldn't have economic success slash development without political freedom, and China proved that you could. Um, you know, Bill Clinton once made the quote that uh, control on the internet is like nailing Jello to a wall. That's right. And yes. China, China nailed Jello to a wall, right? They so did. they, yes. and and I think that the you know the there's a bunch of misconceptions about how the party works, what what Xi Jinping's intentions are, and look, you know, you know, and again, I don't want to sound in any way, shape, or form like a like an advocate for the for the Communist Party, it is a re, it is a regime. At the end of the day, it's a one it's a one party state. Um, it is um, we have multiple examples of domestically very very heavy handed approaches, and that is the most 
diplomatic way I can put it, to treatment of un internal unrest. And that goes back from Tiananmen Square all to what we're seeing in, in Xinjiang. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, what we have in, in China is um, the world's, soon to be the world's biggest economy in the next eight to eight to 10 years. Now, your audience will sit back and say, well, can we trust Chinese data, economic data? Most, in most cases, you can't, right? It's, it's, a, it's a little fudged. But what we can be confident in that is that China has four times the population of the United States. Um, and at the end of the day, if you, it's population that determines GDP. And eventually, if China continues to grow anywhere near current growth rates with, its, you know, with the population, which is four times that of the United States, it will be the world's biggest economy. That's simple mathematics. Um, does that now what what you what you have at the moment is certainly the preconditions of what uh, what Graham was talking about in the book is that you know you have a great power in the United States that um, uh, it can be argued is is in decline relative to China right I think that that's a safe thing to say um, in terms of the the gap militarily is coming in dramatically the gap economically is coming in dramatically and I think that big picture you know you know, from a technology standpoint, the the playing field is much being much more level. Now, if there is going to be an issue with the United States, uh, sorry, between the United States and China, I don't think it's coming from China in the short answer, because what you have seen clear evidence is that China is becoming more inward looking. Um, and I start my China research with the following the following statement. Number one goal of the Communist Party is preservation of the Communist Party. Now, there's a reason why China has had the last outs, the, the last military incursion that the Chinese had, um, and we're, with all due respect to what happened in India, you know, about 18 months ago, um, was in in Vietnam in 1979, right? So the Chinese do not have a history, a modern history of expansionism um, and the like. Um, there can be those that are, can debate nefarious connotations out of Belt and Road and what's going on in, in, in Africa and the like. But militarily, the Chinese have not been expansionist. Now, the key, the key sort of linchpin with all of this, where a conflict would occur um, is, is potentially is Taiwan. I think that's probably by far the greatest risk for, for a conflict between the United States and China. Um, and then we go back to let's go back to the original point about preservation of the party. Now, Xi Jinping has you know, uh, has sort of rocked the foundations of stability a little bit by uh, by announcing himself leader for you know leader for life in a in a very Maoist sort of way. Um, how does Xi Jinping lose that status of being ruler for life? Well, one way he does this is if he tries to take Taiwan and loses, right? So you know, China has very deep, long memories of of of. Of, of history and you know the great I would say the most defining the most defining legacy of China in the past 100 years was the Japanese occupation during the Second World War um, and the and this I think forms the foundation of many things that China does so China knows it can control everything internally you know it can control it you know through censorship it can control it through more draconian measures it can control it in the ultimate format which was which was which is Xinjiang and, and Tiananmen Square um, but it can't control what, things outside its borders so the the Japanese the Japanese occupation couldn't control that why the renminbi is being very slow to be an international currency because you know global monetary crisis or global bond crises are driven fundamentally by foreigners selling your debt so if you make that hard to do, the chances of an of an externally driven economic crisis is greatly is greatly is greatly diminished. So so China looks very much inward. It's about it's about technology independence. It's about all you know. It's about um, food security, energy security, uh, water security, and the like. Um, all of that is very inward inward focused. So if there is going to be a conflict, it comes from the United States. Um, I think that it would probably come up over Taiwan. And why I discount the chances of this happening is that Xi Jinping, for example, is only going to try to take Taiwan by force if he knows he can win. And currently, that is very, very uncertain. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting, interesting perspective there. Um, I do agree with you, of course, that uh, historically, China has always been an inward-looking power rather than uh, power that looked to expand uh, and conquer. I, I think the expansion uh, is is done more through 
developing the ability to influence by by through business and, and through political leverage rather than than by uh, war um, still um, I do agree with you as well that uh, Taiwan is probably the the weak the weak point where where uh, where uh, uh, you know uh, a conflict can 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 start can be ignited uh, perhaps as well the tension that we've been having in the in the south china sea as well control of the trade routes could could also lead lead to 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 an escalation but um i interpret the division of uh, of Graham there in his book more as uh, as a medium to long term um, almost a prophecy if you want uh, because as you said China is not yet ready to face the US militarily and win right but Ricardo let's be okay but Gra Graham's book does make and correct me if I'm wrong here but Graham Graham's book does make the point that these these conflicts tend to start when the weaker power provokes the strong the newly stronger power right. And what, what Graham's book doesn't talk about per se is one very, very important point, which is um, these global co these conflicts between superpowers tend to happen through um, via neighbours. So they've been very European focused historically. Um, and, you know, the, the comparisons to the Soviet Union and the Cold War are not are not great because even though the United States and, and Russia or the Soviet Union sort of um, fought each other through proxies in, you know, in Korea, in Vietnam, in, um, in, in Latin America and the like, um, there was never a direct conflict outside the, the close call, which was the Cuban, the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, you know... Um, you know, I think the fact that China and China and the United States are at opposite opposite ends of the world, I think, is a really important distinction to make, um, because and particularly given the fact that if China is not going to be involved in proxy in proxy battles through the throughout the throughout the world, um, is there really a chance for this to spiral out of control outside of a outside of a hotspot like reclaimed islands in the South China Sea or, or or Taiwan. So I think that this this analogy is a is a bit of a is a bit of a flawed one um, because I think there are a lot of a lot of things against the United States sort of picking a picking a fight with with China, um, particularly given given the consequences and given that from a, it's not like we're having a, you know, a a, a sovereign, a, a part of American sovereignty is being invaded by China, or there is going to be devastation outside of potential nuclear a nuclear attack on U.S. soil. So, put it this way, politically, it would be very very hard to justify to the American people going to war and all the consequences of doing that with a nuclear superpower um, in something where there is no direct direct threat to US sovereignty that's that's right I do I do agree with you with your stance there um, I was just bringing this to the uh, to the table as it, as it is a, an intriguing and a fascinating topic uh, which is generating a lot of debate and, and and to some extent as well it's this debate is then translating into um, some impact over the over financial markets uh, too um, I think one of the uh, perhaps the most visible uh, side of uh, of this latent conflict between the two superpowers if we can call it a conflict is um, what's many now call the decoupling of the of the two economies so i mean many many are saying i mean you pick up the financial times or the economist and all, all you see is uh, is articles uh, saying that you know inflate um uh, globalization as we've known it since the 1990s uh is finished um i'm not entirely convinced that it is finished uh, what are your views on this it's not. It's not finished. I mean, you know, again. So there's a, a couple of points to talk about here. So, um, one, let me make the observation, Ricardo, that geopolitics doesn't matter to markets. Now, I'll keep. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, we'll edit this bit out, and, and your listeners won't hear to this hear, hear this bit. But because I'm I'm sabotaging my own business, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, I I I came to this conclusion 
um, back in the 2000s after the the terrorist attacks in in London, um, and you had obviously after this was a post 9/11 a post 9/11 world, and obviously we had market market calamity after that. But after the after the London after the London terrorist attacks, the the FTSE finished up on the day, and I realised then that geopolitics really just doesn't matter. Um, you know, we had a good a good example of this was like, it was uh, it was recently when the Saudis when you had the uh, the drone attacks against um, against Saudi oil fields, and oil didn't move. Well, basically didn't move. And so I, I think that there is a I think the whole notion of geopolitics driving markets is grossly is grossly overstated. And that might be the quantitative world we live in. It's certainly a function of the, the amount of excess liquidity that is available and readily available in the event of a, in the event of a crisis. Um, so I do I don't think that geopolitics matters as much as what as what people think. And I and you go back to the decoupling of the US China relationship which is well and truly underway and that's going to manifest itself in in you know technology independence, delisting of Chinese companies in the United States, it's in a, a myriad of ways. But the reality is that you haven't seen a major correction caused by the US-China relationship, I think, in four years. So the big one was talked about was um, was uh, was May of 2018, um, uh, May, May of 2018, uh, sorry, May of 20, sorry, May of 2020, uh, 2019, sorry, I'll give the dates right, uh, May of 2019. And that was when um, you had a hawkish commentary out of Powell and Trump threatened to walk out, at the same time, Trump threatened to walk out of the, the trade deal. So was that correction that happened, um, you know, in uh, around that around that period, was that driven by by Trump, or was it driven by the thing that really drives corrections in asset markets, which is a hawkish Federal Reserve? Um, and I can give you a slew of examples over the course of the last 10 years that geopolitics hasn't mattered, and the only thing that really causes corrections is is fears of contraction in liquidity, predominantly US dollar US dollar liquidity. So I think it I think this stuff matters for um, for the underlying sectors and and uh, and the stocks in the stocks involved, I mean, a company like Boeing hasn't sold a plane in China in three and a half years, right? That's going to keep the the Boeing share price depressed. Um, but whether you know whether you have a beta impact on global on global indices driven by um, you know further deterioration in the in the in the trade relationship between the United States and China, I think is greatly greatly exaggerated. Um, a fr- a client of mine for many years has often used the point is does does this event force a fund manager in St. Louis to sell Google? And he put it you put it in those contexts and you go, you know, if, if I if I you know if um, if um, Secretary of State Blinken comes out and makes a comment which is very hawkish towards China, am I really going to wake up the next day and sell my stocks in Amazon? And I think the world I think the world's got a lot smarter than that. I think the world and that's the reason why we don't have contagion to the effects that we had in the past. Um, I think that the geopolitical environment is grossly overstated in terms of a driver of asset performance. Yeah. Horizon, a podcast by Active Trades with Ricardo Evangelista. mentioned there as, a, as part of that um, sort of um, decoupling, if we can talk about it, the process of the through which the two economies are decoupling from each other. You mentioned there the, the Chinese control over their tech sector. Uh, um, yep. What is going on there? I mean, there, there's been story after story. I mean, uh, Tencent, uh, you know, uh, then that episode with 
DD where where they I don't know if it was maliciously or not, but you know it, it certainly appears to have been a little bit Machiavellic what they did there. What is going on? Why why this um, this uh, hard so, line on tech? Well, it's, it's, so Ricardo, is it is it a hard line, or is the China are the Chinese just doing what the rest of the world wished it could do? So, you know, let's let me give you a couple of a couple of um, anecdotes. So. So back in two thousand, back in two thousand and ten, President Obama at the time did a, a, a during his um, uh, healthcare reform did a, a bunch of student loan reform in the United States as well, right? Um, and basically overnight, he banned private private student loans, right? Um, and came out in, in an interview and said, "This will save Amer- this will save American families sixty eight billion dollars over 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 the next decade." Um, in in and making making college college and university more affordable. Now I know the story very well because I had a good friend of mine in Chicago. In the space of six weeks, went from planning an IPO for a student loan company to declaring bankruptcy. And um, how is that any different to the Chinese banning for profit for for profit tutoring? Now anyone who knows a anyone who knows a teenage a teenage Chinese kid or has been through the process of entrance exams in China knows it is the most stressful experience on the planet. Um, you know what? If, if put it this way, if Joe Biden if Joe Biden was to come out and announce free free community college for everybody, right? It would be called the greatest the greatest social experiment in the United States in forty years. Yet other critics are calling what's going on in China a threat to democracy and the fragility of the Chinese Communist Party. Right. So if you look at if you look at what's going on from a technology regulation standpoint, there is a massive double standard here. Right. So um, the EU, the EU fine Amazon nine hundred million dollars for anti-competitive behavior uh, in the same week that uh, that Ali, that uh, Tencent got fined, got fined 50, billion, 50, $50 million dollars for a similar for a similar offense. Um, Ten cent stocks down twelve percent. Amazon stock doesn't move, right? Mage one, the food delivery service, gets raked over the coals um, for not paying its drivers minimum wage, uh, which saw the stock down seventeen percent. How is that any different to what the UK did to Uber in uh, Uber in London, right? And so I, I, I stress this that you know I think. I got myself into trouble on Twitter a little while ago by stating that I think that what the Chinese are doing is going to become the model for tech regulation globally. Um, you know, the, the 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 issues are that tech regulation in China is really popular with the average Chinese citizen, right? Um, Chinese citizens, sorry, Chinese consumers are just the same as American and British and Australian and Canadian consumers. They know when they're getting screwed by by um, by uh, when they know when free is not free. They know when they're paying too much. They know when they're being forced into things they don't want to buy, right? So, you know, the there was a comment out of the uh, out of um, one of the regulators calling gaming spiritual gaming to kids spiritual opium, right? Now, for anyone who's got a fourteen-year-old boy, as I do, as I had to kick him off his Xbox at eleven thirty last night because he was waking up the entire house being a knucklehead, I can confirm that video games are spiritual opium. So there is no parent on the face of this earth that doesn't think that there should be some regulation in regards to kids and video games, right? Is it, you know, so the Chinese come out and ban t- kids under the age of 12 from in-app purchases. How is that somehow draconian, right? So I think what we're going to see is, is twofold. One is that there is going to be a realization that this sort of regulation is going to go on in other parts of the world, right? It's just... The Communist Party, because it's the Communist Party, can do it quicker, certainly more heavy-handed, but they can get stuff done, right? So I think that it's going to be the model for tech regulation globally because, and the other thing is you've seen a stock like Alibaba, which is halved in value, Tencent halved in value. Um, were these companies at these really extreme market caps because they were under-regulated or were they at those extreme market caps because they were just awesome companies right and the the best example i'll give you is ant is ant group so ant group has its ipo suspended in october of last year um they are forced to be a bank holding company now again critics of china in the west turn around and say well that's just you know that's draconian regulation against against ant group no it's regulating ant group like the bank it actually is right so is it draconian or is it make it a fair playing field against uh, against Bank of China, China Construction Bank, Ag Bank. Now, does anyone actually think, because it's now a level playing field, 
that Ant Group is not going to dominate consumer lending. It's going to dominate consumer lending because it's better at it than those other guys. and has better technology and has products that people want to own. The fact that it makes less, it'll make a little less money being a bank holding company, sure. But you've got a, a level playing field across the online world and the offline world. And those companies with superior tech are going to win. And that's Alibaba, that's Tencent, that's JD, that's Kuaishou, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what you're saying there. And, and I do agree that um, there seems to be a, sort of a demonization going on of China in, um, in the West. Uh, not quite sure why. Uh, not even sure if there is a, a, you know, a, a real reason, a real drive behind it, or it's just a product of the circumstances, the times we're living through. I mean, with the rise of populism and uh, and so many silly ideas, um, so maybe maybe to some extent it is a product of that. However, um, this demonization of China or, or portrayal of China as a as a cruel calculating operator uh, is going on and is likely to have an impact on the sentiment of investors in the West. I mean. Um, what are your views on this? Do you think that it is risky to to invest in Chinese assets at the moment, or or not? Yeah, look, it is it is risky now. Now, you know, so for full disclosure, I bought some ten cent, I bought some ten cents and Baidu mm. and some Alibaba ten days ago, and I put it in my son's college fund, right? Okay. So I can put it in there and forget about it, right? So for, could it have a thirty percent drawdown? Absolutely, it could. But am I confident in five years' time that you know that these companies will prove to be the companies I think they are? Yes, right. Um, now, but if you're a custodian of other people's money, I think that's a much more difficult thing to do, right? Particularly if you're a short-term, if you're a short-term hedge fund investor, you can't deal with a thirty a thirty percent drawdown. Um, look, and again, I think that you, you mentioned you said the word demonization, and it's not as black and white as that. But look, let's let's face it. You know, the Communist Party does do bad things, right? Uh, now, you can argue the merits of whether the Chinese people want to vote and whether you can argue that there is a there, there is a, um, a, a, a what I'll call a, a functional a functional equilibrium that exists in China between the, the relationship between the Chinese government or the Communist Party saying we'll provide economic prosperity, but you have to give your right up, your, your, give up your rights and political freedom. And the vast majority of Chinese of Chinese of the Chinese populace is very comfortable with that with that notion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I you know if you look at the if you look at the surveys that are done, you know, the average Chinese is more comfortable with the with the state knowing about their data than they are about private companies knowing about their data, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's an example where the um, the, uh, the 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 founder of Baidu. Um, came out about five or six years ago and made the comment that the people aren't that com- uh, are not uh, uh, people are, are comfortable um, with with companies knowing about their their data, um, and there was an outrage about this, right? So you know Chinese consumers Chinese consumers I think are you know they are comfortable with the with the state knowing what they what they are doing, but not comfortable with private private companies. But I do look, I do think there needs to be a, a discount factored into to Chinese assets based on the Communist Party. Um, you know, it is not as laissez-faire as what you have here in the West. I mean, you know, I said before that, you know, do the, are these companies, you know, companies like Alibaba and Tencent, were they valued at their highs because of under-regulation? I don't think that's the case. I think they were awesome companies. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's very little doubt in my mind that the reason that, that, you know, that Amazon, Facebook and Google trade at premiums to their Chinese peers is a function that, you know, these are going to be under-regulated businesses for years and years and years to come. Um, because, you know, I don't think Washington has a handle on what these companies actually well, what these companies actually do. So I think that, you know, I think I do think there needs to be a, a discount for Chinese assets relative to US peers. And that's a much longer conversation about, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the about, about allocations to US equity and the like, and because the world's best companies happen to be domiciled in the United States. But I do think there should be a discount for, for Chinese assets. I think the volatility that we have witnessed is going to, um, take China as a narrative off the agenda of many folks for for a period of time, um, and look, I think you're going to have a continuation of of, of negative 
narratives, be them around you know the ability for venture capital, US, U.S. venture capital to invest in China. Certainly, I'm convinced that the delisting of every Chinese company is coming in the next three years. Mm. Um, I don't see I don't see a way that's avoided. Um, clearly, that's negative for negative for sentiment. Even though you know you and me and pretty much any foreign investor in the face of the the planet can buy can buy you know the dual listed Hong Kong stocks, yes. um, but it will be it will be a, it will be an overhang going going forward. And um, I do think there's you know Western investors have a, a right to be skeptical, even though valuation is is remarkably attractive. Interesting that um, in China, the public has greater it's true has greater tolerance for for. The control that the state exerts over over the population it's more tolerated i mean someone the other day was saying that um this could be a a matter of cultural differences and and the in a, the west being unable to understand and and frame this much of what is going on within the context of cultural differences so for example um historically um Southern Asian uh, and Southeast Asian um, people, they, they've lived off uh, rice, you know, cultivated rice, while in Europe they cultivated wheat. So rice requires a greater degree of co cooperation um, than the cultivation of, of wheat. So, so um, over centuries uh, and, and millennia, this, this translates into, into different stances in, in regards to to how one sees oneself as, a, as an individual or as part of a community. And I think the West, to some degree, fails to, to understand this and, and tries, to, tries to analyze what is going on, um, framing it within the constraints of, uh, of our Western culture. And, uh, and that may, may be distorting things uh, a little bit. Uh, what, what do you think? It could be a valid point. Yeah, or... I think that I think I think there are some grains. Look, the cultural differences exist everywhere. And I, and I don't think we should sort of limit it to the West versus the East. I think, you know, European, uh, Europe, European culture is much more is much more communal than than what sort of the individual individualistic viewpoints of, you know, the average uh, you know, the average US citizen. I mean, that's, you know, the, the, the role of the individual here is ingrained in ingrained in the le in legal structures and and the like and it's um and i do i do think there's less sense of community in the united states uh than there is in 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 asia as a whole i mean you know i think a good example of this is the social safety net so you know the, d the dirty little secret that people don't know about china is their social safety nets got awful Right, so in terms of social, you know, in terms of pension payments and the like, because there has always been this historical, this historical um, precedent, or should I say, yeah, you know, history tells us that families look after each other, um, and so there's never been a need for a pension system and social security, a social security equivalent and the like. So no, I think that I think that's I think that's I think that's valid. Um, you know, I do think that you know, look, cultural differences are are prevalent everywhere. Um, and they they form the found they form the foundation of societies globally. Now you know that said you know you, you mentioned before about sort of China and global influence. Um, the reality is that why the United States you know calls for the demise of the United States are greatly exaggerated is because culturally the United States is still dominant globally, right? I mean I often say to to clients this is a sort of a, a provocative question: Can China truly be a superpower if it has no allies and has no global brands? Uh, you know, again, you, these surveys get thrown out all the time. But you ask, you know, you ask someone in, you know, in other parts of the world, be it Asia or Africa or Latin America, and you know, in, in sort of in the third world, uh, if you gave them a plane ticket to somewhere, where would they go? Well, they're not going to Beijing; they're going to New York, right? And I think that these things are these things you shouldn't lose you shouldn't lose sight of because you know, the, look, the United States has done a lot of a lot of bad things in the last 40 years, right? In the last 50, 50, 60 years, right? In terms of, in terms of foreign, foreign wars and all that sort of stuff. We know all about that. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the, the United States is still preeminent because it has the world's greatest brands. It has the world, you could argue it has, it collectively has the world's best universities. Um, you know, it's still the place that people from other cultures. You're talking about, um, you're talking about soft power, right? Soft power, yeah. I mean, China, China. You know, obviously, China has its wolf warrior diplomacy, and that's you know that's a more aggressive stance. But you know, 
you know, Hollywood, Hollywood's important. You know, um, the NBA is important. The NBA is important. Uh, you know, uh, you know, sport, sport, sports are important. Um, you know, brands, brands like McDonald's is important, and Nike is important, and increasingly it's going to be, um, you know, the likes of Google and Facebook and the like. And whilst I am the, I am a hard critic of of companies like Facebook in terms of the damage that they have done to my kids, you know, my kids, your kids, you know, you know, the political process, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, there's no doubt that it's it's part of a long line of American brands that are very aspirational. Um, and you know the United States as a place to to quote unquote make it um, is without peer, um, and is going to continue to be without peer. Um, and there are a lot of things in this country I find abhorrent, um, but there are a lot of things that I love, and it's the reason I spend half my time here. No, absolutely, absolutely, right. So, so we're definitely tra traveling west now and leaving leaving the east behind us. Um, looking at the the current stimulus being deployed by uh, by central banks in the in the US, obviously, and uh, other Western um, countries and and regions with the ECB as well. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the threat posed by inflation. You know, um, so the the big question has been, um, is inflation um, structural or transitory? I mean, wh what's your view on this? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it structural inflation that we have? And, no, I, and Ricardo, I'm the wrong guy to ask. I, I, let me, for full disclosure, I am the wrong guy to ask because I'm, so bi I'm such a biased deflationist or disinflationist that I, I, can't, I can't get out of my own way. So, you know, I, I, the problem that I have with my structural biases is the fact that my first my first job was looking at Japan, right? And looking it was, it was looking at Japan. So um, this is back at Macquarie, Macquarie Bank at Macquarie Bank in 1994. And um, um, I um, have always seen what's going on in Japan: the structural disinflation, the bad demographics, debt dynamics, and the like. And all the money printing that we have seen, at, you know, in Japan for 30 years. Um, and the it's the great it's the great count it's the great counter to you know issues of dollar debasement of debt of 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 of, of, uh, of risk premia of all this sort of stuff it goes back to Japan um, and until not only the academic work but the the market work as well can 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 prove why Japan with its massive deficits massive money printing. Uh, has negative interest rates and a relatively benign currency value, given the amount of money that's been printed and the expansion of the the monetary base in in the in the past decades. There's there's no argument. So the arguments about infl monetary driven inflation fall flat, right? You know, at the at the end of the day, my my arguments with with traditional economists and look, I'm in Chicago, so I'm surrounded by monetarists, right? Um, you know, and when can we finally sit down and admit that Milton Friedman was wrong, right? That printing money by itself doesn't cause inflation, right? Inflation is not a monetary phenomenon. We've got evidence of this. Year after year, how often do I have to prove to a traditional economist that says, well, inflation's coming, inflation, we're printing money, inflation's coming. Um, well, we haven't seen it. We haven't seen it in Japan. We haven't seen it in Europe. We haven't seen it in the U.S. Um, it may happen in small, in small localized emerging economies that are very, very dollar dependent and the like. Um, but big picture, you don't, you don't get inflation by printing money. Now, the question obviously goes back to now that now that you've had this transit in the zero interest rate world that you've transitioned to this hybrid fiscal monetary model, whether the notion of providing um, providing payments to the bottom 50% of the population um, in turn, rather than tax cuts to the top 10% of the population, which was the Republican standpoint under both George W. Bush and, and Donald Trump, um, whether that leads to pricing pressures. Now, I think we're in the midst of that experiment now. Um, I personally discount that because I do think that issues of... of, of um, of demographics and tech deflation trump swamp swamp everything um and that the, the 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 chances of us getting structural inflation i think is is very slim i mean my base case ricardo is that you know we don't the united states doesn't raise rates for 10 years 
Really? Um, and, you know, again, well, you know, you, it's funny. You, 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 people can't see Ricardo's reaction because we were on audio. <laughs> uh, but he basically fell off his chair. Now, you know, the reality is that we've had negative interest rates in Europe for, what, seven years? Uh, well, we had zero interest Coming up to it, yes. Seven years. Um, Draghi, you know, going back to Draghi doing whatever it takes in 2000 and 2012. Um, we haven't, you know, we haven't seen Europe being able to move out of that dynamic. So if I put it this way, if I was to tell you that Europe was not, would not have positive interest rates for 10 years, would you be shocked? Right. Um, less shock than than less shock, right? Less shock. So Japan, yes. Japan has had periods where it's been able to raise rates marginally in the mm. last thirty years, but no, nothing you could call a tightening cycle per se. Um, and I do think that we'll find in a world where again going back to going back to your globalization point. I mean, the world is becoming much, despite the pressures, the world is becoming much more connected. Um, and the world cost the cost of production is starting to fall. I mean, I make the argument regularly to clients that the inflation that we're seeing this year is much more to do to do with the blockage in the Suez Canal than what you've seen from money printing around the world. Um, I think that that's all part of it. And I think inf- I think temporary inflation is driven a lot by supply dynamics and sort of um, sort of a, a, what I call a, the bus- when the supply chains get get broken. Right, and we've had a broken supply chain, and eventually that supply chain will be fixed, um, and that will alleviate pricing pressures. Now, are we going to see some higher commodity prices as we decarbonize, as we decarbonize the world, as you know, as, as we have underinvestment in coal and oil? Price of coal and oil is going to go up for a bit. That's fine, but then that's offset by you know that's offset by by cheap energy prices of electric vehicles. There is. There is tech every day we wake up. There is someone out there innovating mm-hmm. to to push prices lower. Um, and I yes, think that's, that that's one going of the great be, arguments. Yes, of course, it's innovation. Yeah, and it's know. and it's why I, it's why I'm struct- a structural disinflationist at heart. Yeah, and also you mentioned there demographics, the change in demographics as well. That's a, that's also a, a big a big factor. Um, I think there's something else that uh, not many people talk about as being a potential cause of uh, structural inflation. We, which is a climate change, you know, and uh, and we saw this year um, with the rise in the prices of some agricultural commodities like uh, coffee and uh, sugar, for example, uh, and this to to some extent, well, it was it was the, the result of logistical problems caused by the displacement of containers, etc., as you mentioned there, but it was also um, caused by uh, frost, ground frost in uh, in Brazil. In, uh, in Minas Gerais, for example, in the case of uh, of coffee, and um, and then uh, further up north there, in the in the case of uh, sugar cane, um, so this maybe is uh, is something that uh, is not being fitted into the the equations of uh, of uh, of some of us, of some of some of the people out there looking into the issue, but it, it could it could perhaps uh, become also a cause for concern. Would you would you agree? Yeah, and I used it's funny. I wrote something about this this morning. Um, you know, looking at coal, at coal prices, right? So, um, you know, price of price of coal is is very elevated. Um, you know, multi multi quarter highs, um, and I think that the the coal and oil prices are going to be sort of in, uh, symbolic of this of the cost of the of energy transition. So, you know, I think the you know I. I personally believe that the estimates of thirty million EVs being sold by twenty twenty five just it dramatically understates the number. I think it's going to be fifty, sixty, could be double that, right? And the reason it's double that is because the value of a combustion, the resale value of a combustion engine is going to is going to fall precipitously going going forward. Um, so what does that mean for coal price, coal and oil prices? Well, there's going to be just massive underinvestment in this in this positive feedback loop of more EV sold, less investment, more EV sold, less investment. Um, and the natural consequence of that is, is sharply higher coal and oil prices because you may still have 50 million EVs sold um, by 2025, but you're probably going to have, is it, well, I couldn't even tell you how many combustion engines are on the road, but I think it's something like 220 million cars um, and, and, and then motorcycles on top of that that still run on, on, on petrol and diesel, right? So they've still got to be fueled. So you're going to have massive underinvestment in, 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 in oil. Um, and that, it's not inconceivable to have 50 million EVs sold in 2025 and have $150 oil. 
Um, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive at all. And I was looking at, at tobacco at tobacco companies, um, and you know, this is the investment that you don't the, the investment you don't tell your friends about. But um, British American Tobacco from 20, from the year two thousand to the um, to twenty sixteen, um, at a period when it, there was massive divesture from you know from socially responsible sovereign wealth funds to American U.S. pensions and and the like, um, British American Tobacco went up twenty fold during that period. Went up twenty fold, right? And that's just that's flat price. That's flat price. That's not including the the you know the five to eight percent dividend yield that continued to be accumulated. So you're probably talking thirty. It went up thirty fold plus um, in total return in that. Uh, sorry, about 20, 20, 25, 20 time, twenty five times um, in total return over over a sixteen year period. Um, and that's when tobacco was uninvestable. Right, so is the dirty little secret that you know the in in this period of climate transition and and, and attempts to decarbonize, um, is this going to be a golden age for investing in coal in coal and oil companies? Um, mm. There's a very strong argument to be made in favor of that. Interesting, interesting. Right, I mean we we more than covered the the time we had allocated to, uh, to this conversation. Um, I can't let you go without uh, getting your opinion on on one last topic, though. Um, so we talked about um, the latent tension between the United States and China. We we talked about the inflation debate. We talked about uh, climate change. Um, there's another hot topic which which I'm really interested in. I mean, since I read uh, Thomas Piketty, um, Capital in the 21st Century, uh, and I'm talking, of course, about inequality. Um, do you think that that the the growth in inequality that that we've experienced since the 1980s uh, has had an impact in the financial markets or not, or, or is, are the two things completely uh, um, not connected? No, they're certainly connected, but it's the reverse, right? So you know, there's 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 no doubt that you know, the, the, no doubt that the growth in income inequality from the, from Paul Volcker breaking the back of inflation in the United States is 100% a function of a the cost of the cost of capital and b the availability of capital, right? So um if you if you're a, if you're a, if you're someone in the top 10% of global income earners right um, your access to your access to leverage has is unprecedented right uh, you know we can borrow you know we those of us who are sort of lucky enough to have had you know decent careers we we can get as much leverage as we want right um and you know for our ability to go off and fund you know, be it rental properties or margin lending on equity or, or, or you know, funding for a new, a new business. Um, you know, it's the, access, it's the cheapness of that credit and the, more importantly, the access to that credit, which is the thing that's driving income inequality. So, you know, I look at, you know, someone like, you know, and again, and, and the third thing obviously is the, is, is the effective, is the, what people pay an effective tax rate. So look at someone like Jeff Bezos, for example, which sort of combines all of these things. Jeff Bezos. Let's say Jeff Bezos needs three hundred million dollars to run his lifestyle for a year. Let's put his let's put his his um, midlife crisis of shooting rockets into space to to one side. Um, so he goes to his private bankers, J.P. Morgan, UBS, whoever it is, um, and says, "I want to borrow three hundred million dollars at LIBOR plus a hundred, probably less for Jeff is probably my guess, um, and uh, and borrows that against his stock." Now that loan will be repaid on via his estate when he dies. So what happens is, as you know, those loans that he does three hundred million dollars every year against the stock that is offset at his at, by his estate at his death, and there is no tax paid. So Jeff Bezos effectively paid no tax last year, right? That is morally repugnant. Um, and you know, anyone who says that you shouldn't have you know that there shouldn't be some sort of minimum tax on this sort of thing. I think is it's it's really it's really flawed. Um, you know, I I spent a lot of, lived in Hong Kong for many years, and Hong Kong has a flat tax, um, and Hong Kong tax system is far from perfect because you know, there's no tax on dividends and that sort of thing, which allows you know people to pay dividends versus salaries and this sort of thing. But you know, at the end of the day, the income inequality is not being driven is driving the income inequality is driving financial markets in a in a in a feedback loop positive or negative, depending which way you're looking at it, um, of you know, your ability to borrow, 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 access capital, pay limited tax, take that money, invest in markets, things are continuing to sort of to spiral upwards. And what that does is it makes housing, housing unaffordable. It creates, you know, 
Um, it makes asset prices, you know, asset prices for equity and the like very expensive for someone who's coming into the market today. Um, look, it's it's a monumental it's a monumental problem now, and it, look, it it's manifested itself in Brexit. It manifests itself in Donald Trump and Viktor Orban, and you know we know where we know where this manifests itself. And eventually, eventually, it's it's unsustainable. Now, I'm not I'm not a pitchforks guy. I don't know if we if what that tipping point looks like. Um, but as someone who is a, a as a, as a as a friend of mine likes to call me, I'm a socially liberal, a little bit a little bit pink on the inside, as I've been described. <laughs> um, you know, I don't see a problem with you know me paying a, a, a t- an effective t- an effective tax rate that's not single digits, right? And that's you know I think that you know I think that you know people in the top in top tax brackets need to pay a minimum amount of tax now. No one's asking people to pay forty percent, right? No one's no one's saying that because again, raising the actual t- tax rate to forty percent, it's irrelevant because it's what the effective tax rate is. But if you were to get, you know, if you were to get American billionaires to pay a ten percent tax rate, right, goes a long way to helping, you know, to or helping. even one percent. Yeah, and I mean, we're not sorry. So ten percent against income, not right, not okay, against okay, assets, okay, right? Ten percent okay. against income, okay. right? Um, you know, I think that these sort of numbers are these sort of numbers go go a long way. And I think if if people the reason the reason that Donald Trump could do what he did, right, um, is because he struck a chord with, you know, in the United States context, coastal coastal elites um, who claim to be socially responsible, but at the same time are paying minimal amounts of tax, being able to borrow aggressively to buy to buy assets at, at you know at unprecedentedly cheap levels. Um, you know something's got to give. Now the market mechanism is the market mechanism, right? If you know if a wealthy person can borrow cheaply, then that's you know that's an efficient market. Um, what's not? What's an inefficient? Well, what's not efficient is them gaming the system where they can do that, but also pay single digits a single digit effective tax rate on their income. And I think that's for me yes. that's wrong. Yes. Right, Paul. We we've came to the end of our, we arrived to, to the end of our show. Um, it has been a, a privilege. Uh, having you on the show and thank you very much for sharing your views with uh, with our listeners Ricardo thank you and keep up the good work this is great Um, I thoroughly thoroughly enjoy it and uh, love to love to come back anytime thank you very much thank you thank you for listening to this conversation with Paul Craig Traders Horizon will be back next week with another guest if you enjoyed the show do subscribe and share it with your friends My name is Ricardo Evangelista. I hope you all have a great weekend. You've been listening to Traders Horizon, a podcast produced by Active Trades and presented by Ricardo Evangelista.